Welcome again, church. We're starting a brand new series here at Encounter called The Gift. And uh, maybe you celebrate uh, Christmas by exchanging some gifts. That's a tradition that we do in my family, and I know it's pretty commonplace. What this series is about is going back to that very, very first Christmas gift exchange. Thousands of years ago when the wise men showed up, uh, the the kings, the magi, whatever you want to call them, showed up uh, to Jesus and they presented him with a few gifts. And we're going to pull back some of the layers and find out what what some of those gifts are actually uh, all about. It's a series when we're kind of pushing past some of the the, uh, cultural barnacles that have stuck on the Jesus story over the years to try to reclaim and, uh, and, and identify what this story biblically is actually about. So I'm going to make this kind of an interactive thing, so I'm inviting everybody to participate. The verse where this whole series comes from is really built off from, is from Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, and as the slide goes up, you'll see some blanks are on the slide, and I invite you to fill in if you know it. It starts off this way, our story, our whole series, then they, as the wise men, opened their treasures and presented Jesus with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. See, you got it, right? Like maybe you learned that in a kids' men program, Sunday school. Maybe it was a pageant that you went to. It's possible that you saw like a Christmas special on TV and you're like, oh yeah, no, I, I know this story, right? I heard this song. Like we three kings, and that's as close as I'm going to come to singing because that's my gift to you. <laughs> I don't sing <laughs> on microphone. <laughs> I'm passionate and ungifted vocalist, so I'm not going to sing for you, but you, you heard the song, you know, We Three Kings, and you're like, oh yeah, no, I, I know this story. But what we're doing throughout this series is, like I said, trying to detach some of those cultural barnacles that have stuck on the story and reclaim and identify what it's really about. So for example, uh, when these kings visited Jesus, he wasn't a baby. Like sometimes we have this picture, like the nativity scene that you've kind of seen, and they've got like a stable, or maybe it was a little bit more historically accurate cave, whatever. But Jesus is there, and he's, he's lying in this feed trough. We call it a manger, and now it, you only think of a manger like a crib, but, but really it's a feed trough made into a crib. And there's little animals around the nativity, and there's an ox and a lamb, you know, and there's like a cow over there. And it's, it's good, and it's all quaint and quiet, like all new births are, I'm sure, right? And and it's serene. There's a star in the sky. There's shepherds out there. And at the same time, there's a star, there's a baby Jesus, and there's, and there's shepherds. There's also magi, kings, right? The, the wise men. But historically, we're reading in the, in the text, in the scripture, when Matthew shares the story, they don't go, the magi don't go and visit Jesus in a stable or in a cave. They visit Jesus in a home. See, eventually Jesus moved out of the cave, like after he was born, right? And he goes and Mary and Joseph probably rented a house somewhere in in Bethlehem where they started to raise the boy. And historically, we we drop in on this scene when the Magi visit Jesus, and he's not a baby. He's like two years old, which once you start to like pry off these barnacles, the meaning of the story really starts to deepen, doesn't it? Like like everybody, I think, is, is in awe of a newborn child. Like, if you see a child in the first moments that they're, like, born, especially if they're sleeping, it's awesome. It's awe-inspiring. It's a holy moment. But then you meet a two-year-old. <laughs> right? Like, it's one thing to be overcome with the holy moment of a newborn child, but to see somebody in their terrible twos and to bow down and to worship him... 
It's Jesus. So maybe they weren't terrible twos. Maybe they were terrific twos. I don't know. But he's two and they worshiped him. Okay. First thing is, he's not a baby when the Magi visit. He's like two-ish. Second thing is, there's not three of them. Maybe there were three. But Matthew, as the storyteller, never tells us that there's three of them. Uh, He just says they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The king's in, and it's plural. So it's anywhere from two to infinity. I don't don't know, right? We just kind of made up the fact that there were three of them, but maybe maybe coincidentally we'll find out someday that it was actually three. And, well, the songs songs were right. And the other thing is there weren't really kings at all. And sometimes we call them, like, wise men. And I think, like, wise guy. And I'm like, oh, that's not really accurate either. Um, Wise men wasn't really accurate either. You see, they were, um, magi is probably closer, it sounds like magician. They were astrologers. Not like astronomers that you see today who know a lot of math and track like planets and stars and, and, are, and are good at physics. Uh, that's different. Astrologers are like, the reason why I was cranky yesterday was in Mercury was in retrograde. And that's my excuse. <laughs> Like, the stars aligning have an impact on how I live my life and, and who I am. It's, it's less uh, science-based, let's say. And, and this is those guys. And they came from a very long ways away. They came from the east. According to tradition, it was the story, and we alluded to this in our Daniel series uh, that we did a little while ago, Stop the Drift, about how Daniel gets taken from Israel. He gets put into captivity, taken away into Babylon. It becomes Persia. And these, these people, these magi astrologers, these, these wise men in Persia, like kept the tradition going. And they're like, someday a king is going to be born. Someday a child is going to be born like no other. And, and I don't know when it is, but, but this is the sign that we're looking for, the star aligning. And so God called his shot 600 years before this story to make these stars align in this way so that the baby will be born and the magi who never forgot the prophecy that Daniel taught them comes and arrives at this moment. And you're like, all of those things came together. Yes, that's what makes this the greatest story ever told. A time when God didn't wasn't content just to shout his love from heaven, but to show his love here on earth by stepping into the world that he made this Christmas. And so there's a lot to this story that we're starting to unpack. And if a God could call his shots like he did 600 years in advance, and if a God could use people like the astrologers, the wise men, the magi, from a 600-year-old prophecy, I have to believe that there might be a little bit more to the gifts then meet the eye. He has something for us. And this series is our preparation series, our Advent series, to get our hearts ready for Christmas. And we're going to do that together as a community by looking at the gifts that these magi bring, the gifts that we just recited together. Frankincense, which everybody knows, is... (laughs) It's a joke. It's a, like, a, like a priestly offering kind of, uh, kind of deal. And through that, we're going to see that Jesus is a healer. Uh, he came to heal, of, heal us of a specific spiritual disease called sin. We're going to see that Jesus in the gift of myrrh, he's a savior for us in two weeks, the last part of our series. And today, the gift of gold. Recognize that Jesus is a king. Now, as soon as I say king, it's like, okay, yeah, he's like one of the kings. There's lots of kings in history. 
there's been a king after another. There's been different kings of different places and different kinds of lands. There's been different kings of different countries and different kinds of kingdoms. There's lots of kinds of kings. And my point this morning, the one big, the takeaway this morning is Jesus is a king like no other. He's a different kind of king. So to get there together, like I said, this is an interactive time as a community. We're going to play a little game. We can play a little game together. That's cool. Like you have a choice. We're going to play a game and it's going to be fun. All right. Fulton Heights, looking at you guys, you're invited to play too. And online, we would love to celebrate, to do this all together. Okay. The game is called Name That King. And the rules are very simple. Name that king. So we're going to put a picture on the screen in just a moment, and it's a king of some kind, and you're just going to have to name that king. You get, you get the rules? You get how to play? You got it. Awesome. First picture on the screen, it's a king, but it's also the name of a movie. It is Lion, Lion King. Nice. Name that king. So you kind of get how this how this sort of thing is going to go. Okay, so we're going to have another one. These are going to get progressively harder as they go on. So this is just child's play, pun intended. This is easy, okay? The next one is a little bit harder. Next picture on the screen, please. It is Burger King. Nice. I was going to put like the mascot that Burger King did for a little while, but it is so terrifying. And I want you to come back next week. So I'm like, Whopper. We're going to go with that one. Okay, Lion King, Burger King, we got that one. Some of you... I love you, but some of you, God bless you. Halloween is your favorite season or your favorite, you know, uh, holiday throughout the year. You love dressing up. You love scary movies, scary books. This one is for you. Name that king. Stephen King. Yes, we've got some prompt people. Like I said, they are getting harder. For those of you musicians, next picture on the screen, please. B.B. King, nice, nice, okay, harder, a little more difficult now. These are going to be of a certain generation only, let's just say it's above a median age. News fans, next king on the screen, Larry King, okay, maybe we have some sports fans. This next one is going to be very difficult. Billy Jean King, you guys are on it, I love it. Last one, probably the hardest, this is for extra credit, like bonus points. Nat King Cole, yes, especially this time of year. I mean, like, ho- like uh, holidays time, you know, like Christmas time. We got to like, get that Christmas song going in there. Okay, give yourself a round of applause. You just completed Name That King. Thank you for playing. See you next week. No, just kidding. Uh, there's a lot of different kinds of kings, right? In some way, we play this little game. In some way, We're just kind of like, we've grown used to there being different kings with different kinds of kingdoms around. And we've become accustomed to the idea that kings have their kingdoms. And when we read the story of Jesus and the kingdom that he brought, I want us to be reminded that he's a king like none other. I want us to be reminded of the story when Jesus broke into the world that he made. His entrance was so contentious. His entrance was so controversial. His entrance divided all of the kings of the world to such an extent that it forced a decision and it drove one global leader to lose his mind. And when we read the story this Christmas about this king, Jesus, who entered the world, we have some tough decisions to make. And so in a little way, we, we play some fun games together because I want to set us up for a bit of a, a gut punch. 
That's coming to us by the end of the message and decisions that we have to make. Let's read the more complete version of the story I read from Matthew chapter 2 earlier. We're going to continue on in Matthew chapter 2 now, starting at the beginning in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, and we have to pause it right there because everybody else knew who King Herod was, but we don't all the time know who King Herod was was. Matthew makes sure to anchor this story in human history. By the way, King Herod, all right, was on the throne when Jesus broke into the world that he had made. And when Matthew says King Herod, I think everybody knows, oh, that King Herod, right? Because they knew this was a guy. He did some incredible things. He was known as like a builder architect type, but there's lots of ways to to build something. Some of it is with swinging a hammer. Some of it was with like Herod-style building. He kind of orders people to, to build some buildings, or in his case, not just buildings, but cities. He totally redid the capital city of Jerusalem uh, in order to describe it in his own words as a capital city worthy of his own grandeur. <laughs> you get a little bit of a sense of what kind of guy King Herod is. He redid the, the water system of Jerusalem, again, without electricity. Like, this is an impressive sanitation plumbing system that he had, to, he had to implement, and he did. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today and you go to the temple, which unofficially had become known as Herod's Temple, completed about 15 years before Jesus was born, but, but continued to be operated on until its destruction later. But if you go to that site and you find the western wall and you stand up top of it, those bricks, those bricks were laid by Herod the Great. That's what kind of king he was. He's a builder type. He's an architect type. He built fortresses at Masada and Herodium. He also liked to name things after himself so that he would be remembered throughout all of history. It's the kind of king that he was. He was connected. He was influential. He, he ran an asphalt company with Cleopatra. Like that Cleopatra, right? Uh, it, it, they used asphalt um, for like sealing up ships. Uh, and they kind of pulled it out of the Dead Sea, and he kind of cooperated this business and made him a little bit of money. He also leased a copper mine with the emperor of Rome. I mean, he's a, he's a connected guy. But my favorite story, I think, it, it shows what kind, of, what kind of person, what kind of shrewd leadership, cleverness that King Herod was. Uh, some of you historians types might be aware that uh, there was a famous assassination by Julius Caesar by the Roman Senate uh, and uh, stabbed in the back, you know, so many times. And, and that created a power vacuum in the most powerful empire in the world, in Rome. And the big question was, who is going to sit on the throne now that Julius Caesar is out of the picture? And there was a few frontrunners uh, into that position. One of them was a, was a guy named Octavius. Another guy was a Roman general named Antony. Well, Antony was caught up in a let's say, romantic relationship with Cleopatra, who had all these connections down in Egypt, another huge superpower base. And those two were together. And so they had this plan of kind of like co-running the Roman Empire. And Herod had to make some decisions. You know, which, which one of these am I going to support? Which one of these am I going to throw my way in my region behind? And so Herod the Great, I don't know, maybe it's because of the asphalt mine thing. Maybe it's some of his connections. But he chooses to push all of his chips in on Antony and Cleopatra. And, and throws parties for them. And goes very, very public with his support for them. Except as history would unfold. Antony and Cleopatra were not the ones who got to sit on the throne in Rome. Octavius would get that privilege. 
renaming himself Augustus, Caesar Augustus, in the process. Well, this created a bit of an awkward situation for Herod, didn't it? I mean, he had publicly and officially backed Octavius' sworn enemy to the throne. And so at this point, usually what you would do is either end it all and finish yourself before something worse happened. You would run away or you would hunker down and hide and hope that Octavius has better things to do than settle grudges. But Herod, because of the kind of guy that Herod is, he creates this fourth option that nobody else ever thought of before because nobody else was wild enough to do something like this. After the dust starts to settle, Herod the Great finds Octavius, now Augustus, vacationing in Rhodes, intrudes on his time away from it all, and says, how you doing, bud? Paraphrasing. Octavius says, Octavius is, aren't you Rome's most wanted? Like, what are you doing showing up on my doorstep here? And Herod said, you know, about that, I wanted to point something out that maybe you didn't know about me. Octavius, emperor, I am loyal. I am fiercely loyal, is the speech that he gave. I am so loyal. I'm, I'm loyal to the point of only death separating me and the person to whom I am loyal. And for a long time, for a season, that was your enemy, that was Antony. But you and I both know, Emperor, that Antony is gone. He's out of the picture. I have no loyalty to him anymore. So now, the reason that I'm ruling over the Jerusalem area and its surrounding places, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you know, it's far away, it's, it's a long ways away from where we are right now, but... But listen, all of this is now pledged through me in loyalty to you. I'm not not loyal to you. And you know how Octavius responds? He bought it hook, line, and sinker. He, in fact, gives more land under Herod's control. It actually got him a promotion. This is the kind of guy that Herod the Great was. This is the kind of guy that King Herod was. He was clever. He was also cruel and paranoid. And he would do whatever it took. And when he had the seed planted in his mind, whether true or fiction, that somebody was going to take his little kingdom out of his little hands, he would do anything possible to stop it. Whether that was his nephew, his son's, or his own wife, Herod would end their lives in order to make sure that nobody took his little kingdom out of his little hands. Historians would look at him, and one historian put it this way, Herod was the evil genius of the Judean nation, and he would be prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. Can you imagine? <laughs> in the next line in verse 1, when Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? I'm sorry, the king of the Jews? How do you think Herod responds to something like that? Herod's got a kingdom. 
we've got a kingdom. How would you respond to a challenge like that? I just imagine Herod is so stunned. You know, they must be from out of town. <laughs> they, they must be from a long ways away because they don't know me. They don't know not to ask that question. I, I think that there's a pause in the conversation. So the Magi fill it in and they said, um, <clears throat> some explanation, some context, of course. We saw his star. He's got a star? <laughs> we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. See, it's, it's not just a king. There's more to it than that. Verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Matthew calling Herod disturbed, I think, is an understatement. All of Jerusalem was also disturbed is probably accurate. See, by this time already, uh, Herod had been in such tension and such conflict uh, with the religious community around. Worship brings that into place, the spiritual realm into play, that rabbis uh, began to avoid, if they could, going to Jerusalem. If at, all, uh, if at all possible, they would try to go around just to not find themselves eye to eye with Herod. He had killed so many rabbis up to that point. Herod is disturbed. He's livid. Everybody in the city is also disturbed because they know what he is capable of and they know just exactly how afraid they should be. Verse 7 Okay, okay, game plan time. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Because remember, all of this wasn't happening just at the, at the birth moment. So he had to figure out, okay, uh, when did the star appear? And do a little math to try to figure out how old this child is, verse 8. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, this city, and he said, go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report it to me so that I too may go and worship him. <laughs> and, the, and the Magi, not really knowing much else, they do. They go to Bethlehem, and they, not to a stable, but eventually the home that Jesus' parents had rented, and they find him there as a terrific two-year-old. And they bow down and they worship him. And they offered him these gifts of frankincense, incense, and myrrh, and gold. A gift fit for the type of king that he is. Kneeling down before the terrific two-year-old as not just a king, but also worthy of their worship was one reaction. We find out another reaction in verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. And stay there until I tell you. The other reaction here. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And we learn a little bit more about the evil part of that quote evil genius of the Judean nation. That he would, and in fact, historically did, bring his soldiers into Jerusalem, or sorry, into Bethlehem, and make his own search for not just that child, but any child, to or under any boy, and end them. 
And Jesus would have been a part of that genocide except for the fact that the angel comes to Mary and Joseph and says, you, you have to get out of here. You're going to you're gonna head to Egypt, uh, specifically Alexandria. There was a, a Jewish expat community with, let's say, political differences <laughs> with Herod the Great, and they settled there until Herod had died and they could move back. This time when they're moving back to Israel, they're like, hey, listen, we're not going to go to Bethlehem. Uh, people know us there. We're going to go as far away from the political center, nowhere near Jerusalem, the capital city. Nope, we are done with politics and our political differences. They go to the absolute middle of nowhere, and they settle for a small life, bringing up Jesus in a town called Nazareth. Herod finds out about this baby king that's born and absolutely loses his mind over it. He commits genocide, his horrible acts. He does what evil geniuses do. And it's so easy to write off a guy like this and say, can you believe it? I mean, no wonder why it's in the Bible. It's such a wild story. I mean, there's never possibly been anyone like Herod, right? And as shocking as a story like this is, I kind of get it. I kind of understand it. Not nearly to the level of Herod, but, but, but we look at a guy like Herod, and we look at him as, as he's got a little kingdom, and he's holding his little kingdom in his little hands, and he doesn't want any of his little kingdom to run out. And I'm looking at my life, and I'm looking at, at somebody else being presented with the gift of gold, his kingship. And I'm like, yeah, well, wait a second. Before a different king comes into the picture, I recognize that I am a little king. And I'm holding a little kingdom in my little hands. And I too, like Herod, don't want any of my little kingdom to spill out. And there's like this conflict that takes place between my kingdom and thy kingdom. And they like butt up against each other. And I, and I, want, I want so badly to, to look at Jesus as king like every other king that's out there. It's Burger King, king of the whoppers, you know. It's the Lion King. He's king of the lions. It's Jesus. He's just another Jesus. He's part of my culture, you know, growing up. Or, or he's my best friend. He's the guy that I can talk to. I mean, he's, he's really, really great. And sure, he is all of those things, you know. But he's also so much more because the gift of gold represents he's not just a king, he's the king. And he's a king like no other. He's not content just to sort of sit on the sidelines and be ignored and, and drop in on him when I need him and then come back out when I don't. He's not that kind of king. He's a king like none other. And it sort of forces this question. And personally, I see this question forced to me like a lot. And the scary part of it is the more I start to ask the question, the more the more the kingdoms start to collide with what I watch and what I listen to, the things that I take into my mind, the things that I take into my heart, it's just like this question of like, who is sitting on the throne right now of that decision? Who's sitting on the throne right now of my life, of my heart? Who's in control? He's aching. Is he the kingdom of my whole life? A couple of weeks ago, I had the honor of worshiping with our Fulton Heights Church community, and it's awesome, and you guys are amazing. But I'm sitting in the front row like I do, and I'm listening to the Next Steps person. I think it was Brianna. God bless her. She, uh, she was Next Steps at both locations, so you'll get to meet her sometime too. And she's talking about the Doing Good campaign that we kicked off, right? Ending homelessness, one family at a time, you know, and the low, low gift of $29.95. And I'm like, go ahead, Brianna. Like, let's get the word out here. I already made my gift. My, my wife and I, we made a plan. 
And then, I, and then God shows up, you know? And he really wrecks some things for me. Because I start to get this sense, you know, it's not like an audible voice, you know, it's not that sort of thing, but like this nudge to say, hey man, like, you were on stage when you asked everybody to pull out your phones and, you know, your wife did it, but like, you didn't. And I'm like, no, but like, we're one, and so she made our gift, we had a plan, this didn't come as a surprise, but I'm like sitting in the front row, like arguing with God while Brianna is like sharing the next seven's vision of what God is up to, and I'm like, no, you don't understand, God, I already checked that off my list, I don't have to give again, right, that's not how this works, and he's like, you're going to tell me how this works, this whole conversation is going on with Brianna, just in the background. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I have a kingdom. God has this kingdom. And it's like these times that they just kind of intersect. There's this decision that has to be made. I know he's a king. Or I know he's the king. But is he my king? You You came here today, you might know that he is the king. But is he your king? And here's the thing. Here's the thing that I've just I've learned about about Jesus as king is that man he's got a kingdom and it, and, it, and it is a king like no other you know like you're born into King Herod's kingdom and you can do very little to escape it but with Jesus' kingdom it's different with Jesus' kingdom he invites you he doesn't like intrude on you he he invites you and he says I've got this kingdom you want to do it my way. Listen, you're in. All you got to do is, is start living into it. It's an invitation. It's not coercion. It's not intrusion. It's an invitation. You know, and we can start to unpack history and start to see like all of these different places around the world where, where Jesus' kingdom is in full force. All these different places where people are saying yes to Jesus and no to themselves. It's beautiful. It's these communities and these places that are marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and humility and self-control and goodness. And and the only way that you can really describe those those micro places where Jesus' kingdom is fully attested to, where people are bowed down in a full posture of surrender and worship like the Magi, the only word that you can describe that is blessed. It's, It's a blessed place. It's a blessed space. It's a blessed kingdom and guys we can see the places where the kingdom is not lived into we can see the places where Jesus is not accepted where Jesus is not this full posture of surrender we can see the places where love and grace do not have a home and Paul also I quoted the fruit of the spirit earlier Paul also gives us what that space looks like In Galatians 5, he goes, this is the space when you opt out of that kingdom. This is what it looks like. Hostility, anger, envy, dissension, and division. So like there's this question for you. And Jesus is going, listen, I'm inviting you to participate in my kingdom. And it's love and joy and peace and patience, goodness. Or you can opt out. You can keep your $29.95, Dirk. But what comes with that? Is discord, envy, anger, jealousy, fits of rage. So it's up to you. You can opt out. But then you're going to miss out on the life that God has for you. Come on, we're in church. At Christmas time, we know that Jesus is the king. 
one more time. Is he your king? Live into it this week. Experience the blessed life that he has for you. Our only response is worship. I want to invite you to stand up. Let's all worship Jesus, the King of Kings, here together. God, it's hard. It's so remarkably difficult. Because the more we pay attention, the more we start to realize that we too have this little kingdom and we don't want to see it slip through our little fingers. So Jesus, in our holiest moments, empowered by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you empower us to opt into your kingdom and to experience that wonderful fruit, joy, goodness, the blessed life that is your kingdom. We don't want to miss out on that, God. Give us the courage this week to kneel down before you, our King of Kings. Amen. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.